pull out your Bible, and we'll do what we always do here. We'll open together to God's Word. The book of Romans, chapter 1. We launched a new series last Sunday in Romans, and we're titling this series The Beautiful Disruption because that is a phrase that describes the way that God often works in our world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He comes in with the power of the message about Jesus to disrupt people's lives in a beautiful way. He did it in the life of the Apostle Paul, we learned last Sunday. If you were not here and you missed that sermon, it's online. You might go back and hear more about Paul's story. God disrupted Paul, and it was a beautiful thing. And he's disrupted every generation of Christians who have studied Romans, read Romans, or preached through Romans. And we're excited because we believe God's going to disrupt our own church in some beautiful ways as we study this amazing book. And I want you to know that this morning we're going to pick up the pace here. We're going to preach an entire six verses. So put on your seatbelt. We're going to preach the intro to the letter. And here's what you need to know before I read Romans 1, 1 through 7. Here's what you need to know. The book of Romans is a letter that Paul wrote. It's a letter that he wrote to a community of believers who were dealing with tension in their church over ethnic and theological differences. That's why Paul wrote Romans, okay? So remember, Romans, this book that we're starting, it's a letter. And you say, well, obviously, pastor, I knew that. But wait a minute, slow down. We need to remember that we're studying as a letter. And here's why we need to remember that. When you are reading a letter, as you read a letter, you make decisions about how you're going to interpret what you're reading that are unique to that genre of letter. Romans is not poetry. Romans is not narrative. Romans is not a systematic theology. It's not a treatise that Paul set out to write where Paul thought, I'm going to write everything I believe about the gospel and uh, I'll send it to Rome, okay? He, this is not Romans. Romans was an actual letter that Paul wrote to real people in a real place at a real point in human history who are dealing with a real issue. Remember when we used to write letters? Remember that? Long time ago, letters, okay. Just, when's the last time you sat down and wrote a letter with pen and paper? Just think about it, okay? Long time ago for a lot of us. The first two months of my dating relationship with Kathy was long distance, all right? It was the longest two months of my life. And we wrote letters. I decided to write letters after I got my first long distance phone bill for $400, okay? And I was like, okay, letters are nice and economical. And I have a box in my office with all of the letters that Kathy Williams sent in the mail to me. Okay, And I'll never forget the day, this is the summer before my junior year, when a letter came and there was a package. And inside that package was a mixed tape, a cassette tape. I'm dating myself now. Remember this, folks? A mixed tape with all of these romantic songs, Rick Astley and... (laughs) 
Wham, all right, Chicago. It was amazing. And I put in that tape and I listened to it and, and I thought of all the feelings Kathy was feeling for me, right? But imagine what it would be like if 2,000 years from now, people came in and found one of those letters and tried to read it and they found mixed tape. What is a mixed tape? I don't know, 2,000 years from now, right? And they tried to decipher what was happening in this relationship between Kathy and I. That's what we're doing with Romans. So we look at it now, Romans 1. I'm going to read the intro. I want you to notice all of the standard features of a letter introduction, okay? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans is a letter. It was sent to Rome. Now, here's what we have to do. I have to get you into one of these churches because we need to understand what was happening. So I want you to imagine we're in Rome. It's about, it's about 57, 58 AD. We're in one of the five. There were five house churches in Rome. They were much smaller than this. They met in living rooms, usually sometimes public businesses, small groups of believers. But the thing you need to realize is if you could get inside of one of those churches, the very first thing you would realize is that the church was very divided ethnically. There were Jewish Christians in these churches and there were non-Jewish Christians. Or the word that the Bible often uses is the word Gentiles. So Roman Gentile Christians and then, and then Jewish Christians in this room trying to figure out how to do Christian community together, which is already challenging enough when you come from different cultural backgrounds. Maybe you speak a different language or you have different worship styles. You use different words. You have different priorities and values. And here they are trying to figure out Christian community. And something had happened seven years before Paul wrote this letter that radically impacted the churches in Rome. So for you history buffs, you'll like this moment in the sermon. About seven years before Paul wrote Romans, the emperor, Claudius, the emperor of Rome, expelled all of the Jews from Rome. There was a, it was actually a disruption over the identity of Jesus. And the Jewish people were fighting about who is Jesus, and so Claudius said, enough of this, and he just kicked all of the Jewish people out of Rome. And for five years, there were no longer any Jewish Christians in Rome. So think about what that did to these churches. These churches were originally partly Jewish Christians, partly Gentile Christians. And actually, the Jewish Christians were sort of leading the way. They were the first ones to come to Christ. They were the ones sort of setting the agenda, creating the culture in the church. Now, Jewish Christians leave Rome And for five years, the church is run by Gentile Christians. For five years, Gentile Christians 
determine the culture, the worship style, the priorities. And then about five years later, when Nero became emperor, he changed all of these verdicts and all of the Jews came back into Rome, including Jewish Christians, and they tried to rejoin this church. But now the church is different. The church has been run by Gentiles. And you can imagine the kind of conflict that broke out in the community. I mean, we already, in the church, we already have conflict about all kinds of things, right? We can find anything to fight about, isn't that right? We fight about the coffee's too hot, the coffee's too cold, the coffee's too strong. I don't like the color of the carpet. I don't like how long the service is. I don't like the worship. We can fight about anything. I literally heard the story of a church this year where a a fight broke out in this church. You're not going to believe this, but I promise you this actually happened. A fight broke out in the church about their potlucks, whether or not they should be serving deviled eggs at the church potluck. (laughs) I'm not kidding you, all right? And I'm reading that going, the devil did not enter your church through the eggs, all right? (laughs) The devil entered your church through stupidity, okay? But imagine how difficult it actually is to blend diversity of culture and ethnicity and theology in one church family. And so Paul wrote a letter. Now here's what's amazing. He wrote a letter, but if you know Romans, you know that for the first 12 chapters, Paul doesn't say anything about this conflict. 12 chapters, starting right here in the beginning. The beginning of the letter, he says nothing. He doesn't start out and say, okay, we got to talk about this. We got to talk about the racism. We got to talk about the ethnocentrism. We got to talk about your theological elitism. Paul doesn't talk about any of that. Paul says, I'm going to deal with that, but the way that I'm going to deal with that when I start this letter and for 12 chapters straight, I'm going to talk to you about the one thing that can actually solve your problem. I'm going to talk about the gospel. Can I tell you something, River West? The Apostle Paul believed that no matter what the problem was in the church, the cure was the gospel. Doesn't matter what the problem was. He believed this with all of his heart. And God wants to disrupt our church with this conviction. It doesn't matter what the problem is. Is the problem racism? What's the cure? The gospel. Is the problem elitism? What's the cure? The gospel. Is the problem confusion about human sexuality? What's the cure? The gospel. Is the problem a lack of generosity in churches? What's the cure? The gospel. Now, This is hard for Christians to think about this because this is not actually how we typically think about the gospel. So I'm going to use a little illustration here to help you get this. I think you'll understand what I'm doing. I want you to imagine a human life from birth till death stretched along a line. Just look up here. So here's the birth of a human being all the way across to their death. Somewhere in the middle is their salvation. They come to Christ. Could be earlier in life, maybe it's later in life, doesn't really matter for my purposes. But imagine a life 
from birth to death with salvation. And then if you were asked the question, okay, from birth to salvation, what is the message or the information that a person needs to get to salvation? And every Christian would say, and they would be right, they need the gospel. Yes and amen. But then if you were asked the question, okay, what about from salvation to death, the process of sanctification, discipleship, becoming more like Jesus, working out issues in your life, what is the information that the Christian needs from salvation until death? A lot of Christians would say they need something deeper. They need rich theology. They need deep doctrine. They need to study something that's not as shallow as the gospel. And Paul would say, absolutely wrong. The way you come to Christ is through the power of the gospel and the way you grow in Christ and work out your problems and become mature and have your heart transformed is through the very same message, the very same power of the gospel. A person says to me, are you telling me that we're gonna just talk about the gospel for the next two years? I already know the gospel. I'm a Christian. I'm gonna warn you, don't ever say that to me in my presence. If you wanna see happy, amiable Pastor Adam lose his marbles, (laughs) say to me, I'm a Christian, I already know the gospel. Because Paul and Jesus disagree with you. (laughs) You never master the gospel, never. The gospel is like the gospel is like a well that's so deep that you could spend the rest of your life trying to get to the bottom to get the sweetest water and you would never get there. Did you know there's a place in Peter's letter where Peter says he's talking about the riches of the gospel and he gets to this moment where he says, and did you know that the angels in heaven long to look into the glory of the gospel? Angels spend eternity marveling at the gospel. Think about that for a minute. Think what angels have seen. They are very hard to impress, okay? They're like teenagers. Doesn't matter, they're like, oh, I'm bored. I'm watching a movie and I'm texting at the same, they're like, they've seen it all, right? Angels were there at creation. They spend eternity beholding the face of God. And Peter says, now they spend eternity marveling at the depths of the gospel and so should we. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z. The gospel is not the diving board into the pool of Christianity, it's the whole pool itself. At our church, we say the gospel is like the DNA of our church. Everything we do has gospel truth, gospel power as its foundation. Or as Timothy Keller said it, Because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of a church. Amen? That's what we're doing this year. I'm calling our church, I'm calling you on a mission to go even deeper in the gospel of Jesus than you've ever been. Let's love it, let's learn it, let's let's live it. Let's not just understand it, let's let it transform our lives and our church family. Let's get disrupted, folks, by the beauty. And Romans is the way. 
There were six reasons Paul believed the gospel was the cure, okay? Six-point sermon. I know that rattles you. I apologize, okay? You're like, where's the three? It's actually two sermons and one, three and three. No, I'm kidding. Six reasons Paul believed the gospel was the cure. Number one, the gospel comes from God, not humans. It comes from God. Paul says, let me be clear. Right out of the gate, end of verse one, this is the gospel of God. This is God's thing. He had said something similar in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, where Paul said, for I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I just, I want to be super clear right at the beginning. This is not something we apostles invented. The gospel is not a result of human musing about religion. Hmm, let's think about this and building a, a message. None of that. The gospel was revealed by Christ and entrusted to apostles and then written down. And Paul would go on to say, that's why I'm not at liberty to reshape it, to make it sound more appealing in our culture. I'm not at liberty to domesticate it, to make it more comfortable for our lives. I don't have liberty to do anything to the gospel. My only job with the gospel is to relay it faithfully. And Paul would say the same for us. The gospel's not one more religion to add to the rest. The gospel isn't actually really a religion at all. It's an announcement from God about what he's done to change the world. It's the greatest news the world could ever hear. That's what the word gospel means. It just means good news. Paul's saying, here's what I want you to realize. The gospel is God's announcement. I've done something to change the world through my son, Jesus Christ. And that is why the gospel is so powerful. When Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This is what he's talking about. He's saying the reason it's powerful is because it doesn't come from human beings. It comes from God. It comes from God. So imagine what would happen in our church or even in your life if you didn't really believe that. Just go with me for just, imagine if you're like, yeah, I mean, the gospel's amazing, but you weren't completely convinced that it comes solely from God. Imagine what would happen. You might be ashamed of the gospel. Or perhaps you might think, well, the gospel's great, but it's not quite enough. We need more than the gospel. I need deeper doctrine and I need stuff that's really practical in my life. I don't just need the gospel on Sunday. I need other things. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a really famous preacher back in the 1950s, he wrote a book for preachers. And in that book, he was talking about uh, sort of a debate that was happening in England in the church. And the debate was, about this question, should a sermon be primarily deep doctrine or should a sermon be extremely practical? And they were talking about this in the 1950s, which is hilarious because we still debate this today, okay, in, in, the, in the States in the 2000s. Should, what should a sermon be? Should it be super deep doctrine or should it be really practical? And Lloyd-Jones says, well, actually, I would say neither, 
I would say neither. Because a sermon is not primarily about filling people's heads with more doctrine. That's what lectures are. You come out of a lecture with a bunch of notes and then you stash them in your notes and then you never remember them again, right? <laughs> right? So that's not what a sermon is. But he also said a sermon's not a pep talk. A sermon, the purpose of a sermon is not for, for a pastor to stand up and, and tell you a bunch of things you have to go do for God. Where you leave going, oh, burden. These are all the things I have to do for God. That's a motivational speech. That's not what a sermon is. A sermon is preaching that causes the listener to get to a place where they eventually set down their pen, stop thinking about what they need in their head or what they need to do for God, and they just worship God for all that God has done for them in Christ, because that is actually the thing that will transform you and change the way you live. You don't need another list of to-dos that will burden you. You need to have your heart changed by the wonder of the gospel. And that's what, that's what Paul believed because the gospel's from God. Number two, the gospel is old, not new. It's not a new religion. It is a fulfillment of an old one. This is what Paul says in verse two. We look at it there. Uh, this gospel of God, verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. In other words, this new announcement that sounds new to people about Jesus and what he did on the cross, his resurrection, it was actually just the completion of old promises. It's actually ancient. It's not brand new. It only sounds new. But the scriptures had been predicting and promising for thousands of years. That's why you have two testaments in your Bible. That's why your Bible is so wonderfully thick with a significant portion of it. The Old, the Old Testament is basically one long story arc, one long narrative that's constantly pointing forward to our need for a Messiah. And the New Testament is the explanation of that that Messiah is Jesus Christ. And so the whole Bible is connected around Christ. But the point is that the gospel is ancient. Now, the reason that in our culture, we, are, we value innovation more than anything. Think about this. We love everything needs to be new. Am I right? Do you feel me? The second you walk out of Apple with that iPhone, it's already outdated, right? You're like, I hate this already. It's so, the technology's so old. Five minutes later, and Apple tells you to think that, right? Because we worship innovation. But in the ancient cultures, they, were, they actually, they valued tradition. It was tradition that gave credibility to something. And the gospel, Paul says, the gospel is just the final act in the story of Israel's messianic hopes. So think what he's doing. What he's doing in that moment, he's saying, all of you Jewish Christians sitting in that church, I want you to know something. This is your gospel. This is your traditions. We'll see this in chapter two. Stay here. 
I know it's hard to do church with the Gentiles, but this is your, and then he, and then says to the Gentiles, but this is now the, this is now the fulfillment of all of those traditions where Christ is the Lord. He's raised from the dead and he's grafted in all of you Gentiles. In one sentence, Paul takes two ethnic groups and he holds them together in community. And it's brilliant. And how we need that message in our world. Number three, the gospel is about a person, not an idea. It's not a series of abstract principles. It's not for spiritual laws, okay? Laws and principles can never save you. They don't have the power to change your life, but a person can. And that person's name is Jesus. And I'm just going to give away right now my, the purpose of my entire sermon, all right, which you should never do as a preacher because then people will just go, I'm going to fall asleep, okay? Here's the goal. My goal by the end of this is if you have never turned to Jesus in faith and said, Jesus, I want a relationship with the one person who can finally change my life. That's where I'm headed. You're not here by accident. This sermon's for you. Because the gospel's not just a bunch of ideas. The moment we take the gospel and reduce it to an idea, all the power drains out the bottom. The gospel's powerful because it's about a person. I'm gonna put up on the screen verses three and four because I wanna show you that um, this is... uh, This is a visual way to show what Paul does when he says, here's what the gospel, here's who the gospel is about. And what that little paragraph is, that's actually a creed. It was probably one of the first Christian creedal statements, statements that they would confess together that was the, got to the heart of the gospel. And actually, a lot of scholars think they used this creed when, when they would do baptisms, which by the way, we're doing a baptism next Sunday and we're doing it right in our morning services. This is gonna be wonderful. Please come back. We're gonna have our baptismal right over here, which looks like a hot tub without jets, okay? And the water's warm. And when you come, we're actually, as a part of our service, we're gonna baptize some people in our church. And in the early church, they were baptizing. They were probably using this creedal statement. But I want you to notice, look at what it says. It's, it's not just a bunch of doctrines. It's actually a story about the identity of Jesus. So look at it. He says, who's, here's who the gospel's about. It's about Jesus, and here's what you need to know. He's the preexistent son, eternal son of God, who from a human standpoint was born in the line of David. So that according to the flesh, he was born of David, fully human. But according to the spirit, he was raised in power. Resurrection from the dead. Fully divine. You're getting in in this one statement, the full humanity of Christ, and you're getting the full deity of Christ. And not only that, again, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles. Okay, all of you Jewish Christians, this Jesus, this is your Messiah, born in the line of David. All of your messianic hopes are fulfilled in this person, Jesus. And all of you Gentile Christians, this is your Messiah, raised from the dead in power. But then he finishes and says, and that's not all. 
He's the Lord. He's the Lord of the universe. You can trust him. He's good. He's powerful. He loves you. Folks, the gospel is a message, yes, but it's a message that ends with an invitation. Will you respond to this Jesus by turning to him for relationship? Turn to him. The gospel is not just, not just a set of propositions that you say that's true. The gospel is about being invited into a relationship with the living, reigning Lord Jesus Christ who wants to know you. And so in a few minutes, I'll, I'll lead us in a prayer where if that's something that you sense Jesus inviting you to, you, could pray that, you, you can pray that prayer with me in just a few minutes. Here's number four. So let me recap. The gospel comes from God, not humans. The gospel's old, not new. The gospel is about a person, not an idea. And here's number four. The gospel creates change, not just belief. Now it does create belief, but it also creates change. You say, where are you getting that, Pastor? Look at verse five. Look at verse five. Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, look at this phrase, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. The way to respond to the gospel is through faith, yes, but it, it is a faith that Paul describes also using the word obedience. And I, I'm going to just insert myself here and, and say this can be a jarring moment for a lot of Christians because we think, wait a minute, isn't this a whole letter about, about justification through faith alone? And so I'm hearing the word obedience and it's kind of like, it's jarring. What are we saying here, Paul? Are we saying you, 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 you get saved through obedience? Paul's not, he's not compromising the pure, precious doctrine of justification through faith alone, which we'll talk a lot about. But he is saying this. He's saying the kind of faith that saves you is a faith that has changed your life so much that you begin to want to obey your new ruler, Jesus. Obedience becomes something you want to do through the power of the gospel. We have a mental block when it comes to obedience talk in the church. It's hard for us to hear. Obe Wait, you're saying I have to obey. And an obedience talk is hard for us. And I, here's, I thought a lot about this this week, okay? Here's what, here's what I think the problem is. When we hear obedience, we think of something that's forced out of us as some kind of an unwilling participant. <laughs> I don't want to obey. And God's like, you have to obey. And it's this odd, like I'm being forced to do something I don't want to do. But that's not the kind of obedience that the gospel is talking about. So here's a little word picture that I think will help you. Imagine with me for a moment, you are hanging from a branch. Just go there with me mentally, little word picture. You're hanging from a branch over the edge of a cliff. You've already fallen over the edge of the cliff and there you are hanging from a branch. And as the full 
weight of your body pulls down on that branch, you look up as that branch begins to splinter and crack. And you start holding on and you're thinking, I'm going down. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, a really strong arm reaches down and grabs you on the wrist and says, I've got you. I've got you. And then that person says, now, here's what I need you to do for me to get up out of here. I need you to let go of the branch, grab a hold of my arm, and they give you a series of steps to do. Here's my question. In that moment, would you say, don't ask me to obey you. You're not the boss of me. How dare you tell me what to do? You have no right to tell me how to live my life. And that's how we often think of obedience. As Christians. But here's what it is. It's God reaching down, grabbing a hold of your life, changing your eternal destiny forever, transforming you. If God in that moment, if Jesus said in that moment, okay, here's what I need from you, you would say, I can't wait to do whatever you ask me to do. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to obey you, Jesus. Because the gospel creates change, not just belief. Obedience in Christianity flows out of a love for the one who died for my sins and rose again to save me. Amen? Amen. Number five, the gospel is for everyone, not a select group. It's for everyone. You saw that word nations in your Bible. And I want to talk about that, that word in verse five. It's actually, in some translations, it comes through as the word Gentiles, where Paul says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's actually the Greek word ethne. It's the word that we get from which we get our, our English word ethnicity. It's, it is a, a word that meant people groups, nations. The word had its roots in the history of Israel, where as the Israelites, the, the, the Hebrew people, as they became aware of the fact that they were God's chosen people, that they had been especially set apart, they came up with one word to describe all of the other nations that lived around them. And it was this word, ethne. In the Hebrew, it's the word goyim. But what happened over their history was that word became for them a word that they used in a derogatory way. As they mixed with other people groups and they were tempted to worship and with their idols and things, the, the Jewish people became ethnocentric. They even became racist. And they would look out at other people groups who were not like them and they would use this word Gentiles as a derogatory word to describe all other people groups. What's amazing about that is all along in the history of the scriptures, God is telling them over and over, hey folks, there's coming a day when my salvation is so big, it's gonna go to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And then that happened. Jesus died on a cross, 
Three days later, he rose from the dead. Several, several months later, he poured out his spirit at Pentecost. The spirit started moving in the lives of Jewish people first who became Christians, and then to their shock and horror, Gentiles started coming to faith. <gasps> what? And they, and they gathered together and said, what's happening? God's grafting in outsiders. And it just seems like it's part of human nature, the human heart, to always want to surround ourselves. We're, we're tribalistic by nature. I always want to be around people who look like me, talk like me, think like me, vote like me, fill it in. And we gravitate towards that. And God says, I need to disrupt the churches because the gospel's for all people. It's for all people. Every people group. Did you know that in the book of Romans, I think one of the reasons Paul wrote Romans is he knew they're having conflict and my fear is they're going to split into two churches. It'll be the very first denominations right there in Rome. They, they would get so tired of trying to do life together that they would form a Gentile church and a Jewish Christian church. And Paul said, no, please do not divide along those kind of lines because the gospel's bigger than that. I know it's hard. I know it's awkward. I know it's difficult to be around people who have a different political view than you. It's hard to be around people who have different preferences than you. It's hard sometimes to be around people who look different from you or have different styles. But that's, why, that's what makes the church so beautiful. Churches in our community who gather around a political platform do not make the gospel look beautiful because I don't need the gospel to explain what's happening in that church. I can explain it with politics. But churches that gather around the gospel where there's no other explanation, why are all these people of different colors and languages and, and even theological distinctives and different political ideas, they're gathered together in community. What is the thing that could possibly hold that church together? And Paul says, there's only one thing that has the power to do that. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Finally, number six, the gospel brings glory to Jesus, not us. That's who gets the glory. Praise God. You see it there in verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Look at this, for the sake of his name. That's why we're doing this. Paul says, why was I set apart for the gospel? Why am I writing you this letter? Why have I committed my life to bringing the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles? Why am I constantly trying to invest in churches? For one reason, the ultimate reason, is for the, the reputation of Jesus, for the sake of his name. I could preach an entire sermon about what the Bible teaches about the name of Jesus. It's fascinating. You could read your Bible and notice how often the writers talk about the, the, there's something about his name that is so wonderful. Sometimes all you have to do is just say his name when you're worshiping, just Jesus, 
And when you say it from the bottom of your heart, it's like honey. Something so precious about it. In the book of Acts, John and Peter have healed a man who could not walk. He was born from birth could not walk and they healed him and it created a stir in the city and the, and the officials gathered them and said, stop doing what you're doing. And in Acts 4, I don't have this on the screen, but I'll just, they said, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Listen to this. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. No other name. There's only one name by which you can be saved. It's the name Jesus. And you just say it in faith. Jesus, I believe you. Remember when Paul said, did you know, Paul said in Philippians 2, that God has exalted Christ and he's given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember that verse? This is God's, God's given Jesus the name by which every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. And I have a question. If God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, should we? Should we? Should we make it our entire mission? Should we make it the focus of everything we do together? Oh God, if there was one focus when we gather, it would be that Jesus' name would be exalted. What would that be like? What kind of a church would that look like? It would be amazing. I'll close with a quote from John Stott that I love. He writes about this idea. He says, we should be jealous, as scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of Jesus' name. We should be troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated, strong as that incentive is. No, the highest motivation should be zeal, burning and passionate zeal, for the glory of Jesus Christ. I love that. I love that. I'm standing before you as your pastor saying, this is our commitment. This is our commitment when we preach. This is our commitment in our ministries. This is our commitment in our worship services that Jesus Christ would be glorified. And I need you to buy in 100%, okay? Are you with me? Are you with me? Because I locked the doors. No one's leaving. No, I'm kidding. Mm. Will, you do, will you pull out your communion packet, please? As the worship team comes,
This moment in my life is the moment of greatest stress when I'm actually trying to just get the plastic off the top. And I'm like, this is all happening on camera. It's like, why is this happening to me? Okay, here we go. Pull it out. Pull out that piece of, piece of bread. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. I want you to take communion in a slightly different way today. Okay, first, we're going to think through our six statements. This is from God, not us. This is old, not new. This is not just an idea, it's a person. It's not just about belief, it's about obedience, change. It's not just for us, it's for the nations. And this is not for our glory, it's for the glory of the one who died and rose again. It's for his glory, amen? Amen. Can we pray and then we'll eat and drink? Oh, Father, how we thank you for Jesus. Where would we be were it not for Jesus Christ, our Lord? Change the, change the desires of our hearts today, God. I pray you would make obedience to Jesus sweet in our hearts and our lives. I pray that as the full reality of this meal sinks in, that every one of us would leave here different than we came in. And I pray now for those who have come, who have been considering Christ, been thinking about Christianity, but for some reason, something has just held them back from turning to Jesus in faith. I'm praying about you right now. This is your moment, my friend. The simplest prayer you could pray, and you can pray it right now in the quiet of your heart as I prayed out loud. You just say, Father, I believe what I'm hearing about Jesus. I believe what I'm hearing about the gospel. I believe what I'm hearing about sin, the full tragedy of it the death of it. I believe that Jesus lived a human life in the line of David, full humanity, but I believe he was fully God. He died on a cross for my sins. He rose again in power. I believe. I believe there's only one name given under heaven by which a person can be saved. And I call upon his name right now. And will you just do that now in the quiet of your heart? Every one of you, let's call on the name of Jesus this morning as we worship. We pray together, Jesus, in your name. Amen.